So maybe you guys have heard statements like this before. Maybe you've even thought them. I know I, I have at times of my life that um, it seems like on a cursory look at Scripture that the, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Right? Have you guys heard that before? Not in a cave here, right? Not all by myself. Yeah, I see a few heads nodding. Um, but it's really not true, is it? It's the same God. And, it, and this is something we've got to realize. We've got to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis because um, especially when we're in the prophets, there's so much judgment. Uh, like I mentioned last week, there's so much judgment that it, it's easy to get wrapped up in this idea that God is unrelenting and always judgmental and and that it's this God, this mean God of the Old Testament, right? Um, but, it, but it's not true. He's, he offers love and grace and mercy in the Old Testament, um, just like he does in the New. Um, and he also, there's wrath in the New Testament, just like in the Old, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we close later, not right now, as we close later. Um, but this is, a, this is an, a concept or an idea we've got to get out of, our, out of our minds. It's the same God. Now, he may be dealing with humanity in a new way through the new covenant. That part's true. So there are new things happening, but it's the same God. It's not a different God. Um, I've also got to keep in mind, I mentioned last week that, that the things we're reading about in, in the prophets is a condensed version, right? It's, it's many years laid out in 65 chapters of Isaiah, and, and we read them continue week after week, and it's not like it was happening that rapidly with the kings, right? I mean, this is over a 50-year span of Isaiah's life that he's speaking to the kings and bringing God's word to them and warning them of judgments to come because of their behavior, right? Um, the other thing to keep in mind is just how idolatrous and how... Um, hypocritical and how uh, apostate Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom, southern tribes, and the northern tribes for that matter, but just how apostate they were, how far out of God's will they were. They, the idolatry was so bad, you're probably aware of this, but they, there were some of the kings actually brought idols, statues, right into the temple district, right? I mean, right into the place where they were supposed to just, just worship God. And because nothing happened, they thought, well, this is okay. God's okay with us. He doesn't mind. We can worship Yahweh and Moloch or whoever at the same time. Um, but that's simply not true. And over and over through the prophets, God warned them that this kind of idolatry, this kind of apostasy, it, it couldn't go on. It couldn't last. Judgment would come. Uh, remember the three main indictments that the prophets brought, idolatry, social injustice, and ceremonial ritualism um, or ceremonial religion. And I bring those three ideas up and I try to bring them up regularly because, well, one, it's what the prophets talk about. It's what God indicted Israel for. And then also because we live in a culture that really has the same three problems. In, in fact, these three problems are rather timeless. Um, consider idolatry. We were made to worship. Humanity, humans, we were made to worship. And if we're not worshiping the living God, we're going to make something up in our own minds to worship. We're going to find something to put our attention and our worship toward. Um, 
we're Id idle factories, humanity or humans are idle factories. We're also self-centered. Speaking of social injustice, we're self-centered. We're always looking out for number one, right? I mean, now redemption changes that. It, it, we get an egoectomy, or hopefully we're getting an egoectomy from the Lord, and, and it changes our focus to be more outward. Um, so that's being worked on in our lives as well. And then there's also this idea of uh, the ceremonial ritualism or, or religion, ceremonial religion. We can easily fall into the trap of treating God like a, like a vending machine. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, how does a vending machine work? You put something in, right? And then depending on which lever you pull or which buttons you push, you get to choose what you get out of it for one, but you do the right sequence and boom, you get your candy bar or whatever it is that you're looking for in that vending machine. A lot of people in our day and age treat people just like that today. Now, the advantage with a vending machine is it actually has a price right next to the product you want, right? So you can see what it's gonna cost you. <laughs> now, in this ceremonial religion or this, this uh, idea about religion based on a similar kind of situation, there's priests that tell you what it's going to cost, right? It's like, well, you've got to give this many sacrifices in order for this result to come about. And what happens if, if the results don't happen, if they don't come? Well, you're, especially today's false priests, they'll tell you, well, your faith just isn't strong enough. You didn't believe enough. You didn't trust God enough, and therefore this thing didn't happen. Um, it's easy to fall into this trap that God's like a vending machine, that if we give him what he wants, then we can control the outcome. The reality of that situation, though, is that we're, we're actually seeking the wrong things. If we're, not, if we're not receiving from God the things that he desires to give to us, it's because we're actually desiring the wrong things. Um, false religion is the very worst kind of pride because it attempts to make God our servant instead of recognizing that we are his. He's calling us into his story. I mean, I've mentioned this a few times. He's calling us into his story, not looking to put a stamp of approval on our story or on the things that we're doing. He's actually calling us into something. He has a plan. He's got things happening and he's calling us to join in with him in that plan. Um, Consider John 3.16, famous verse, you all know it, for God so loved the world, in the world there is cosmos or universe, it's all of creation. God so loved all of creation that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith and trust in him, they won't perish, right? You, they won't die, but they'll have everlasting life. Um, now keep in mind that, to put a little bit of a fine point on it here, it doesn't say that God so loved Kelly, that God so loved Bill, that God so loved Sue, that he sent his own son. Now, those things are true, okay? I'm not saying it's not. But that's not the main emphasis. The main emphasis is that God loves the creation enough that he sent his son. We're bit players, right, in the big picture. We're bit players in his story. He loves all of the creation, and he's bringing redemption to all of it, not just individuals. Although, I will admit here that we, humanity is the pinnacle of his creation, right? I mean, that's the last thing he creates, and he, and he says it's, it's very good after all of creation is done. And we're created in, in his image, right? So there's something special 
because we're created in, in his image, we have a special place in his heart. So I don't want us to think too highly of ourselves, but I also don't want us to um, get depressed <laughs> as we continue to look through the prophets and we, and we read about God's judgment. Um, again, because these oracles are written to hypocritical, apostate idolaters. And this is the scenario that all of the prophets were writing into, or the kind of scene that they're all writing into. Now, here's a good thing about this for us. We can read these messages and we can draw out principles of spiritual health like we did last week. Um, we looked at, at four of those in particular. We asked if we're trusting anything or anyone more than we're trusting God. Um, and recalling that substance abuse was one indicator that, that perhaps there are things getting in the way of that. The second thing that we asked ourselves is, are we discounting the idea that God has actually spoken? Are we discounting his written word to us, the, the idea that he can reveal himself to us? Um, the third thing we asked is, are we wise enough? Can we learn from other people's mistakes? Um, as well as our own, right? But can we learn from other people's mistakes as well? And then finally, we looked at if... Um, about our ability to discern spiritual things? Or are we spiritually dull? Are our hearts dulled and, and uh, uncaring, unfeeling perhaps? Or are we just unable to discern spiritual things about our own lives? Um, Self-assessment is a good outcome of reading these judgment passages. <clears throat> There's also some potential adverse effects, okay? Um, and they can be something like this, like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, expecting that, um, that these judgments are written specifically to us about certain things in our life, and that's actually not true. Unless, you know, if you're a hypocritical apostate idolater, unless that's true about you, these passages are not, or these judgments are not written directly to you to address things you're facing in your life, okay? Now, we can, again, we can draw principles out of them, um, but these judgments, as they're laid out, are not specifically directed at any one of you, or at me for that matter. Um, but they might inform some areas of where your spiritual health is lacking. God's not looking for the opportunity to whack you upside the head, okay? He's not carrying around a two by four waiting for you to do something wrong. Uh, in Romans 15:4, in fact, why don't you turn there? We're gonna be in Isaiah 29, so if you're already there, hold your place, but turn to Romans just for a moment. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 4. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, For whatever was written in former days, this is talking about the prophets, the wisdom literature, the the narrative of the Torah, everything that was written before was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So through these judgment oracles, we're supposed to find hope. How does a passage about judgment bring about hope? Well, remember, there are two themes that are running together here the whole way through. We, we read these judgments but then sprinkled into the middle of them are, are moments of hope, this picture of a bright future that's coming. Because remember the threefold statement that, that God is also making through the prophets 
to Israel, but potentially to us as well, is listen, you've broken the covenant, right? You've broken the covenant, so repent. If there's no repentance, there's going to be judgment. And not just for you, Israel, but also for the nations. And yet there's still this hope. There's this glorious hope of a future, both for you, Israel, and for the nations. Um, we've talked about that multiple times, but an in, in, in important concept to keep in mind. Um, the message of judgment and the, these glimpses of this new and glorious dawn is sprinkled just enough to encourage our endurance. Uh, and Paul, again, there in Romans, was telling us it's for our instruction in order to bring about that hope. In Christ, we're free from the bondage of sin and death. We're free to actually from doing wrong. We're free, we're actually free to do right in Christ. We've been in bondage to sin our whole life since we were born until we came to Christ. Now, if you're like me, you're probably not doing it perfectly, and that's all right, because we're confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. In what day? When's he going to bring it to completion? Say it louder. In the day of the Lord. Yeah. I love that you said in the day of the Lord. It actually says in the, in the passage, it actually, in Philippians, it's 1 Philippians 1, 6 or 1, 4. It actually says in the day of Christ Jesus or in the day of Jesus Christ, which is in the day of the Lord, right? Same, it, uh, anyway, that just ties together to the multiple times we've talked about the day of the Lord going through the prophets, that it's this um, significant day in the future. Uh, but it's in the day of Jesus Christ as well. Um, now, on the other hand, if you actually are a hypocritical, apostate, idolater, well, we should talk, preferably from a distance. You can call me. Or maybe we can meet up at Hirschberger where there's a nice lightning rod, right? Um, now, seriously, you know, if you have doubts, concerns about your spiritual health, this, that's actually a good sign. Uh, it means you're able to discern spiritual things uh, or at least to, to know that maybe things aren't right in your life. And if the Lord has given you that gift, then by all means, talk to someone that you trust. Uh, talk to a pastor. Talk to one of the elders in the church. Um, Talk, again, talk to somebody that you know is going to give you good wisdom, good biblical wisdom. For me, it was my dad. When, uh, when I knew life just wasn't everything that it should be. Um, and, and this happened as an adult. I was 34, I think. I think I've said 36 multiple times, but I was looking at it the other day. I think I was a little bit younger than that. But anyway, mid-30s. Um, and series of life events that were really were disciplines from the Lord, I'm sure, to a certain extent, and perhaps some judgments, uh, certainly conviction, and at a, a place where I really was broken. And the first person I called was my dad. And he told me, you know what you need to do. You, get, you need, one, he says, you need to go back to church, which is the first step, right? Because that's where you're going to hear about God. And two, it's like, commit to Jesus. Do the things that you know are right. So all of us could use somebody like that in our lives, Beyond my dad, then it was Pastor Don Holmes here at the church, who's now with the Lord. Um, and then there's just a series of other people right up until, maybe not today, but probably yesterday or within the last few weeks, there's been somebody I've gained wisdom from uh, that I trust that's a, that brings good biblical counsel into my life. Um, so listen, just a reminder, don't get discouraged or get caught up in the, tr in the trap of thinking that the Old Testament and the New Testament are describing a different God. 
Remember that Isaiah was speaking to God's covenant people in a time when, I, when idolatry, uh, it actually was normalized, and the hypocrisy of the day was fairly accepted. Um, again, some of the kings had actually brought idolatr- idolatrous worship right into the temple, right into the temple mount. Um, and as we'll read tonight, they worshiped with their words, they gave lip service to worship, but their actions spoke something different. Uh, also, it's important to keep in mind that um, it's always easier to see these failures in other people. It's easy to apply God's word to someone else, right? But we've got to start here. We've got to apply it to ourselves first. Um, and we do that by cooperating with the work that the Lord's doing in our life, not pointing out all the problems in someone else's life. Now, there's a time and a place for that, okay? But, you know, remember what Jesus said? He said, take that big honking log out of your own eye first. That way you can see clearly to remove the little tiny, that little tiny speck that you're so worried about in your brother's eye. You can see clearly to remove it then. But get the log out of your eye. You got this tree growing out of your head. Um, You know, deal with it first. You know why you had to say this? It's because we give ourselves a ton of leniency, don't we? I mean, we have a lot of grace and mercy for ourselves and our own issues, our own sins, until we've overcome them. Like, so being a former smoker in a previous life, there was a period of time when it was really easy to judge people that smoked, right? Now, it's okay if you're a smoker, I'm not judging you. Just because you smell like you're in hell doesn't mean you're going to hell for smoking, okay? Illustrating, illustrating the point, right? That we're the harshest critic of things that we've overcome, oftentimes. So, uh, so again, take the log out of your own eye. All right, let's quick recap here of Isaiah up to this point. The first 12 chapters, and this is going to be big chunk recap, okay? The first 12 chapters are all about God's intention to purge Israel, to bring refinement to his people, In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25, it says, I will also turn my hand against you, speaking to Israel, speaking to his people, and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will will remove all your alloy. This is like the the, the smelting process for gold, right? I mean, you heat it up and you add lye and various things and the dross comes up to the top and you scrape it off and what do you have left? Pure gold, right? That's what he's talking about, that, that kind of a process in Israel. He's going to bring pressure and judgment and discipline, and it's going to purify his people. It's going to bring purity there. Um, He's talking about purging, refining, making his people pure through this judgment and through divine discipline. Chapters 13 to 23 speak of God's intentions, uh, his intention to judge the nations around Israel, that they're all subject to his uh, sovereignty. They're all subject to his judgment as well. He's saying, listen, these guys aren't getting away with anything just because I'm not their God. They still, they're still answerable to me just because I haven't called them. They're not worshiping me. They still have to answer to me, which brings to mind the idea that ignorance is bliss, right? Not true. Ignorance is not bliss. Um, Romans, the first three chapters in Romans make it clear that we're all without excuse. It says that God's given enough revelation to us of his existence uh, that we don't have any excuse for not worshiping him, worshiping him and following him. Um, he's revealed enough to us that we can, at the very least, acknowledge his existence. So 
lack of direct contact or some kind of first personal revelation, it's not going to save anybody from God's coming judgment. Sometimes, you know, people get that idea that I mentioned earlier that ignorance is bliss, that the less I know, the less I'm responsible for. Um, and that's really kind of the, well, there's diminishing returns to the little bit of truth that is in that statement, okay? God does say the more you know, the more he's going to hold you responsible, but the opposite isn't necessarily true, that just because you don't know anything, it's available, you should know, is basically what he says in Romans 1 through 3, the first three chapters. Um, it says you should know, and you will be held responsible for that. The next big section in Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27, he says he's going to deal with the entire cosmos. He's reworking the entire creation. He's bringing about redemption everywhere. His plan is bigger than just rescuing me or rescuing you. Um, he's got this grand, this grand story and this grand purpose that he's doing, which is all the more reason that we should be excited that he's calling us into his story. He's doing something incredible, and he's allowing us to play a role in it. Um, join in. Get excited about what he's doing. He, helping to bring about this redemption to the entire universe. Now, listen, the outcome that's described in Revelation, it's not dependent on you or dependent on me, but we get to play a role in it. And to me, that's pretty cool. That's just exciting. Um, all right, so now where, where we're at, where we were at last week and this week. Chapter 28 was all about the judgment coming on northern Israel, coming on Samaria. And this week in chapter 29, he's bearing down on... Uh, well, on Israel, on uh, Judah, on, Jeru on uh, Jerusalem in particular. So let's jump in to Isaiah chapter 29. I'm going to try and read in a little bit bigger chunks than I did last week. Not terribly big, but anyway, we'll start with the first four verses here. Um, it says, ah, which again, a reminder, that word ah is, is uh, at the very least based on the same root word where we get woe, which is like, Whoa, you're coming under God's curse, is the idea here. It's like, ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak." From the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust of your speech shall whisper. What, Ariel, Ariel, what is this? Uh, well, because of the context that's in here, we know that he's speaking about Jerusalem. Um, how do we know that? Well, the city where David encamped. Does your version say encamped? If, if you're reading something other than an ESV, it, it may say... Uh, well, what are some of the other words? Camped, encamped, besieged, doesn't get used that often. Settled, yeah, David settled there. Yeah, um, so the idea, that probably the rendering that makes the most sense here actually would be besieged, even though very few of them use it. And the reason is this, because God's talking, we're talking about Jerusalem, right? The, the, uh, the Jebusites who originally lived there thought it was impenetrable. They, they mocked David. It's like, you're, you can't find, you can't get in here. You can't overtake us. We've never been overtaken, which they hadn't. They'd been, uh, it was a very well-fortified, fairly small, actually. The original city of David, or when he first took it away from the Jebusites, was maybe 10 acres, so about the size of the campus here at TCF. Um, not all that large compared to what it is today. 
They thought it was impenetrable. David besieged it and took it over. It actually went in through a waterway. But um, David encamped against it. He besieged it. He took it over and, and then lived there. And then it talks about in, uh, where is it, in verse um, 3, it says, I will encamp against you and surround you and will besiege you with towers. It makes a lot more sense if we plug besieged in there because it was besieged before by David and then God has sustained it all of these years until the point when he's actually going to besiege it and he's going to bring judgment against them. Um, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but... Uh, this idea here where in verse 1 it says, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. There's a couple of different interpretations here. It could be that this is actually dating the text, that it's saying within the next year these, things, these events are going to happen, which would point us directly probably to 701 when the Assyrians were on the doorstep of taking over. They weren't right at Jerusalem, but they were very close and they were coming there and they sent envoys there to speak to them. I talked about this last week. Um, and uh, uh, or the other possibility is is that it's referencing this idea of just ongoing life, like being married and giving in marriage. Speaking of like the days of of, uh, of uh, Noah before the flood, or the coming days, right before the rapture, when two people are in a field, they're just they're going about their normal day. They're going about life as they generally would, and suddenly calamity comes on them. Right? Or suddenly something happens. Uh, that's the idea here. Suddenly this disaster. So verse 2, Yet I will distress Ariel, and there will, shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Does your Bible say Ariel there at the end of verse 2? Does anybody say altar hearth? Yeah, NIV says altar hearth. So... There's maybe a little bit of a play on words going on here. He's, he's, in the first verses, he's using Ariel as uh, a proper noun, like a name. But Ariel actually means altar hearth. So he's saying, oh, my altar hearth, my altar hearth, <laughs> which doesn't sound very proper, right? But that's the idea. It's this proper name that also means altar hearth. Uh, so... Again, there's probably a little bit of a play on words going on here that we don't understand in English very well. But Jerusalem, what, what was contained in Jerusalem? I mean, simple question. What, what was the main feature in Jerusalem? Okay, yeah, the temple which contained the altar, right? Yeah. So you just jumped ahead one step, Brian. Thanks. Uh, so Jerusalem contains the temple. And an altar hearth is essentially the flat part of the altar where the wood goes, where the fire comes from. Um, so essentially what God is saying here is, uh, well, this city, which God allowed David to capture, again, it's been preserved by God. It's now coming under his judgment, and it's going to be destroyed by fire. That's how it will be destroyed. God will besiege it himself, he said. He actually does it through their enemies, bringing about the destruction. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did in 586-587. Verse 5. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be 
visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel. All that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. As when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion." There's a sudden and, and a rather dramatic shift happening here as we get into verses 5 through 8. Um, this also is probably or easily could be a reference to 701 when Sennacherib's army is, is camped just away from Jerusalem. And in one night, the Lord's angel wipes out 185,000 or 85,000. Um, anyway, a large number of his army and they pack their bags and go home in defeat, right, without ever raising a sword against Israel or Jerusalem. Um, certainly, it's a, at the very least, these passages, that their, for, that their foes are going to be, they're going to turn to dust, right? Um, like passing chaff, the wind's just going to blow your enemies away, is the idea here. It's the picture. Um, at the very least, it's partially fulfilled in 701 with Sennacherib's army. It's also much more clearly fulfilled in events, uh, well, Revelation chapter 20 to the end, right? Um, but it's in particularly like uh, chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, Satan's defeat um, and the, the Armageddon, the armies coming against Israel are just blown away like chaff. Certainly a greater fulfillment in those events. Listen, feel free to read the last couple chapters of Revelation at any time other than right now. Um, on your own time, it's a great read. It's a reminder of how the story ends. It's a reminder of, of God's victory in the end, right? And uh, it's refreshing and encouraging. So we'd just encourage you to do that. It also gives us a great picture of what awaits us as Christ followers. Um, Isaiah's illustration here in verse 8 uh, relates so well to the experiences um, of humanity. Have you ever gone to sleep hungry? And then, you know, you dream about eating this nice, juicy morsel that's so fulfilling. But then you wake up and it's just empty, right? It's like, I'm still hungry, <laughs> even though I just had that awesome dream of steak and lobster or whatever your favorite meal might be, um, chocolate ice cream. Uh, or, you know, you go, to, you go to sleep, you go to bed thirsty and, and you dream, you have this dream, this vision about whatever satisfying drink, um, ice cold water, or maybe ice cold milk or whatever it might be. And you wake up and it's like, oh, what happened? What happened to that feeling I was having when I was dreaming, right? What's well, kind of the idea he's talking about here in verse eight? It's like to their enemies, the idea of capturing Israel is going to be this incredible, satisfying, fulfilling vision. And then they wake up to the realities of the fact that actually God's protecting them and None of, none of that's going to happen. Um, you're not going to overtake them. It's the idea that Sennacherib had when he was bringing his army. It's the same idea that the nations have when they're coming against Israel or that Satan has when he's coming against Israel. Um, and the reality is that God's going to fix it in an instant. Verses 9 through 12, we see a mood shift back to judgment. Um, it says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. 
Be drunk, not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become in you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, and he says, I cannot read. Uh, in other words, no one has understanding. These are all themes that we've seen before in Isaiah. Isaiah 6 spoke of hearing without understanding, of seeing without perceiving. Um, talked about, I mean, just dulled hearts. And then last week in chapter 28, the inability of the spiritual leadership. Now, whether it's talking about them actually being drunk or just being intoxicated with their own wisdom, um, being full of their own self-import, it's talking about their lack of ability to, to not only to lead themselves spiritually, but to lead others. They can't do either, their inability to do so. And then also remember back Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah volunteering, he said, here am I, Lord, send me, right? Well, Isaiah, in those same passages, Isaiah was called to go and speak to people who didn't want to hear what he had to say. Um, they didn't appreciate his message at all. So, uh, do you ever find yourself in those kinds of circumstances, speaking truth into someone's life and realizing that everything I'm telling them is exactly what they don't want to hear? Well, welcome to the ministry. It happens quite often. Um, it's never fun, right? But ministry is often filled with telling people truths that, that they really don't want to hear, that they don't want to uh, actualize about themselves. Uh, nevertheless, we're called to speak truth into people's lives. Or as one of my favorite art, 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 artists often says, Toby Mac says, uh, speak life. Speak life into a dead and dying world. I love that song. <laughs> Um, and not part of his lyrics, but speak it boldly and clearly, but do it with a side dish of love, grace, and mercy, right? Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Uh, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Um, verse, in verse 13 there, that the phrase, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, um, Jesus quotes this in Matthew 15 he's, when he's speaking to the Pharisees. Um, he's essentially he's talking about, listen, you're going through the motions, uh, you're doing all the right things, except that you're putting your own traditions ahead of God's Word. And he's not discounting all of the, the, 
the Levitical laws that they should have been following or the, as we've talked about them, the Levitical um, instructions for living with a holy God. He's not discounting those, but he's saying, listen, you've interpreted them your own. You're, you're taking commandments of men above what God's word actually said. And, and you're honoring me with your lips, but your life doesn't match up. Hypocrisy at its finest here, right? Um, going through the motions. Hypocrisy, ceremonial religious or ceremonial ritualism um, kind of fits into both of those camps. Um, verse 14, it talks about him doing wonderful things. And usually when we think about uh, wonder upon wonder, we think of the wonderful things like deliverance from Egypt, the incredible things that God did on behalf of his people to deliver them. Um, and it certainly is referencing back to that idea and those kinds of events. The difference here is he's saying, it's going to come upon you, Israel, uh, or Jerusalem. I'm bringing that same kind of judgment upon you. The same kind of things that I delivered you from, now I'm bringing it upon you. Uh, yeah, I'd said earlier, spoiler alert, he's actually bringing judgment against them, just like he did their enemies. And then... Uh, the wisdom of their wise men is going away. It won't do them any good. And the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. Uh, most of you have kids, right? Or grandkids? Or you've been around kids at some point? <laughs> if you haven't, perhaps you will be. I think you'll understand this experience, whether it's your own children or other people's children that you've, you've been around. Um, you ever notice how they're astonished at the things that you know about their behavior in particular, I'm, I'm talking? I experience this on a regular basis with, well, I don't know if they are shocked by this. Maybe they're not. I, I should ask them. But my own grandkids, they'll stay over at our house. And, and you know, it's bedtime. It's like, all right, everybody goes to bed. And, and, uh, and then you can hear the whoosh, 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 bam, bam. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And it gets louder, right? And then Papa gets to go in and say, listen, it's bedtime. Lights off. Be quiet. I don't want, not another word. And everybody's dead silent, right? <laughs> yeah. You leave and you close the door and you always leave it cracked just a little bit. And I stand there and wait and listen and then walk away and then back in. Listen, I said not another word, right? And they're like astounded that I can hear them from 10 feet away or something, it seems like, right? The same thing anytime, it, you know, moms have eyes in the back of their head. It's because we're much more observant than they realize. We hear things that are happening. We know what means in the next room, right? The kids are doing something they're not supposed to be doing. We don't have to see it to know. Um, that's kind of the idea happening here in the next verses in, in uh, verse 15. It says, Ah, you hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, you whose deeds are in the dark. Um, you act like God can't see you doing things in the dark. Speaking in particular to uh, Jerusalem here, he's he's. Well, for one, as a side note in the moment, God sees the things that we do in the dark. He's not blind like we are, right? So it doesn't matter if the lights are on or the lights are off. If you're doing something that's sinful, he knows. Um, and it doesn't matter where we are. There isn't any place we can go to hide from God. Uh, so he sees and he knows. Uh, so do the easy thing. Just repent. You know, stop and repent. Um, what he's talking about here in verse 15, he's actually referencing a deal that they've made with Egypt at this point. Ahaz, the king before, Hezekiah is most likely the king at this point. 
And the king before him, his father, Ahaz, who was a terrible king, had made a deal with Assyria. As you all remember, I've said this multiple times, they'd made this deal with Assyria. And now Hezekiah, they're seeing that this isn't such a good, this isn't going to work out very well for us having this deal with Assyria. Who else is left? Who else can we make a deal with? Well, Egypt is the other big power in the place, right? And Israel is sandwiched between these two superpowers of the day. All of his counselors are saying, let's go to Egypt. Let's trust Egypt. And um, many of them did. In fact, a large contingency of them went to, Jeru- or went to Egypt. Remember, they forced Jeremiah to go with them later on. Um, so there was this large contingency that thought Egypt was the answer. For as good of a, and Hezekiah was a good king, okay? For as, but for as good of a king as he was, this is one area that, where he really failed. Isaiah, God, actually, through Isaiah told him, listen, don't make a deal with Egypt honor the deal you have with Assyria, actually, which is a little shocking. Um, But he tells him, honor the deal you have with Assyria, stick with it, uh, and trust me through that, right? Well, he actually didn't listen to that counsel. So they sent an envoy down. They sent, you know, all these camels with gold and goods and nice things to try to buy Egypt to come be their their protector, uh, thinking that because Egypt had a great army. I mean, they had chariots, they had horses, and they were good soldiers, where Israel wasn't particularly. They weren't horsemen. They didn't have chariots. They were good fighters in the hill country. Um, but out on the flats, they got wiped out by armies that had horses and chariots. Um, so they go to Egypt against Isaiah's counsel and, uh, uh, and disobey God in that. And that didn't turn out well for them either because Egypt later on actually turns their back on them. They didn't come to their rescue, but... Um, verse 16, this reference to the potter and the clay should sound really familiar. Uh, Jeremiah and Paul both use the same illustration. What it's really declaring is God's sovereignty. He created us. Who are we to question what he, one, who are we to question what he tells us to do? Um, who are we to, to complain? Who are we to rebel? It's actually foolishness to, re- to resist God. Verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out of an offender, make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Um, the first verse there, chapter, verse 17 your version may say something slightly different. I think they think the ESV and the NIV are very similar. Probably most of the versions you're reading are going to be very similar, but it's a really difficult uh, passage to translate. So there are different translations to it. Uh, I th- this seems to be the best description. It seems to be the best translation. And the, the idea here about Lebanon and this fruitful field and then becoming a forest, the idea is that it's a great blessing um, that, that God is going to bring Bring, he's going to bring a blessing to a desolate land, that it, uh, Lebanon. 
Um, and in that same day, the deaf are going to hear, well, how do the deaf hear? How do the blind see? Well, God opens their eyes. God opens their ears, right? Um, probably referring back to the verses about you're, you're, you're going to be seeing but not perceiving and hearing but not understanding. God's going to open their eyes so that they actually can perceive. They actually can understand. Um, and out of their gloom and darkness, they're going to come out of their gloom and darkness. Um, and then uh, working our way down into verse 20, uh, all, of, all of this from verse 20 on, well, all of it really, this last section, verse started at 17, it's all describing a great reversal of what really of the realities of our world. Um, no longer will the ruthless come out on top, nor the scoffer or those who are waiting for the opportunity to do evil. Uh, look at this description of real justice, this real justice that we all desire, and, um, and how it lists out uh, those who are watching to do evil. Um, it says, who by a word make a man out to be offender? Bringing false testimony, right? That's not going to happen anymore, it says, because, because he who's looking to do evil shall be cut off. Uh, or those who lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. The gate was a place of justice, so like the court system of the day, right? So basically it's saying, listen, lawyers are going to bring, are going to bring false testimony or they're going to uh, take advantage of the poor. And that's not going to happen anymore. It's going to reverse social injustice, right? Um, or with an empty plea, turn aside him who is right. All the unjust things that we see in our world are, are gone and done. This has to be a picture of the Messianic kingdom either in, in the millennial age or the eternal state, depending on what your eschatology looks like. Um, my money's on some kind of millennial reign. Maybe whether it's a literal thousand years, it's some long period of time when Jesus Christ is actually sitting on the throne with you and I, those who are believing in the Lord now, experiencing the first resurrection in resurrected bodies, ruling with him, and yet there's still people in these old model bodies wandering around doing stupid stuff. He, be exciting times to be part of. Uh, verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, J Jacob shall be no more ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. This, this has got to be talking about the restoration of Israel. Um, just a, uh, an early hint towards what Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11, um, Israel being restored. Also, it's interesting here that there's this distinction between not that they aren't distinct, right? They're two different men, but Abraham and Jacob. Um, and I'm not going to press on this too hard because this is Kelly talking, actually. I didn't read this anywhere, but it, it uh, just in kind of in thinking through um, how we become part of the kingdom, uh, how we're grafted in. We're actually grafted into Abraham, right? It says, there's branches that are cut off and then we're grafted into Abraham as Christians. We're grafted into Abraham because of his faith, right? Well, and here it's talking about Jacob's restoration. Jacob is what? What's the other name for Jacob? Israel. 
To me, this is some kind of reference toward Israel's restoration, again, even just from the opening lines, being something separate from the church that's grafted in, being something, not that they're not becoming Christ followers, okay, I'm not saying they're just because they're Israel or just because they're Jewish, they're getting grafted back in, but their eyes are actually being opened up, their ears are being unstuffed, and they're seeing the Messiah for the first time and receiving him because the dullness that's been clouding them forever, well, since the Messiah came, is removed. And they're finding restoration and redemption in the same Jesus that you and I worship. Um, so again, I'm not going to press on that any further, but uh, interesting to me. Let me offer some observations and some advice here as we, as we wrap up. Uh, like Isaiah, we're actually called into sharing hard truths with people. Uh, I said that earlier, but um, and they're truths that many people don't want to hear. Here's some advice. Tell them anyway, right? Tell them, and tell them with as much love as you can lather on it, but, but tell, tell them. Tell them the things they don't want to hear. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about ways that they're behaving or, or things that they're involved in. Or, uh, and with that, always include the fact that, listen, Jesus doesn't... He cares what you're doing, but he doesn't care what you've done. He's willing to restore you and bring forgiveness into your life. Um, so don't get hung up on your past. Let's focus on your future. Trust Jesus and move forward in this, right? Um, and we do that, one of the ways we do that with as much grace and humility as we can muster, as much compassion and kindness as we can um, bring into the situation, the way we do that is, is reminding ourselves that it's only God's grace and mercy that separates us from what they're experiencing in the moment, right? It's only His mercy that separates our destiny from the destiny that they're headed to, where they're at right now, pre-Christ. Um, and then in that, Rejoice when you're privileged to share with someone that wakes up. Uh, there's nothing better in the world than to share the gospel message with somebody and see the light come on, boink, and see them get reborn, get them see, to, well, to witness someone's rebirth. A uh, second piece of advice, and I kind of already mentioned this, but don't be fooled. Just because you can't see in the darkness or just because you can't see God, like, our kids or grandkids or somebody else's kids, right? They think because they can't see you, that, that, that you don't exist almost in their brain. At a certain age, that's actually true. You don't exist if they can't see you. But um, he sees everything. We're an open book. So don't be fooled into... Here's the idea that, that can come out of that. Don't be fooled into the idea that a lack of current discipline is the same as God's approval. That a, and a lack of immediate disapproval is it's not a green light. Did that make sense? Did I say that right? A lack of immediate disapproval or, or discipline from God is not a green light to continue in the things that you already know are wrong, right? I mean, God's Word clearly tells us um, what He expects and what obedience looks like and what serving Him looks like, what being made uh, more holy on a regular basis looks like. Um, so don't don't conflate those two ideas. Um, the man, Solomon, who was gifted with wisdom, writes this in Ecclesiastes to us. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, wicked things, that is. This also is vanity. 
Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. It's essentially saying what I just said. Uh, a lack of immediate discipline from God is not a green light. It's not, don't take that as his approval. Um, likewise, Second Peter 3.9 tells us very similarly. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's actually really good news, and especially as we're reading through all of the, um, all the judgment. Um, there's really good news in reading all that judgment, and we'll, we'll wrap up here in a moment with that. But um, Another point to remember, piece of advice, remember that we don't want to get caught up thinking that we're dealing with two versions of God, this Old Testament wrathful God, a New Testament loving God that, that our culture oftentimes tries to uh, describe. The same God who poured out wrath and judgment in the Old Testament also poured out his wrath and judgment in the New Testament. The difference is, in the New Covenant, he pours out his wrath and his judgment where? At the cross on Jesus, right? As our substitute. Well, how do we connect Isaiah 29 to the cross? Where, where do I see that in here? Well, look back at the second half of verse 14. And he says, uh, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in uh, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How can that be? Well, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is a direct quote from uh, Isaiah 29, 14. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where's all your wise people? People? Um, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly of preaching the, the cross, he's saying, or the crucifixion and the resurrection. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's a direct connection back to the verses we've been in. Um, Oh, I meant to finish more of that. So verse 26. So consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you, this is highly complimentary here, right? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose you and me and our foolishness, believing what he tells us. Um, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring up nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast except that he boast in the Lord. Let us be people who boast in the Lord, yeah? One last point. I mentioned that there's great, I think I used the word security, um, in these judgment oracles that we're reading. And the reason I say that is because we see God's faithfulness in the judgment that he brings. I've mentioned this multiple times as we've been going through Isaiah, but um, the whole Old Testament really is full of men's, people's, humanity's faithlessness. And it's always followed up by God's faithfulness. Um, we are secure in Jesus Christ. Uh, Israel is secure in the promises that they received from the Lord. Um, he didn't give up on them. Now, did he bring discipline and judgment? Absolutely. And we see that. We're reading about it on a regular basis. But they still exist. They exist today, which is incredible, for one thing. Um, that gives us a picture of security in Christ. Consider this. You didn't do anything to earn your way into heaven except to trust Jesus, right? So your behavior, your admission into heaven, your admission into God's kingdom is not based on your behavior. How could you possibly do something to take you out of that security, to take you out of his grace and mercy? You can't, right? Now, that's not a license to sin. Okay? I'm not saying go and sin more so grace can abound. No, Paul addresses that. Um, so it's not a license to sin. But it, it is just a reminder that we have great security. Don't be expecting judgment to come. Discipline may indeed and probably will come uh, if you're in a sinful state, right? If you're sinning in your life. Um, but don't, don't, this sounds weird. Don't give up on God because of your faithlessness. God's actually faithful and he's trustworthy. So continue to put your trust there. And then, as it said there at the end of uh, the First Corinthians passage, then we can be people who do boast in the Lord because of his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, uh, thankful for your word, thankful, Lord, even for the, well, for the security that comes out in these judgment passages that, that, um, that you love your people enough to not give up. Lord, that you are faithful to, to your word, you're faithful to the promises you've made, to the covenants that you've made. Even, even when we break them, you continue to keep those covenants um, and, and to make ways for them to be fulfilled. So we're grateful for that, Lord. We don't, I don't claim to fully understand it, but I'm so thankful that it's true and that uh, you continuously prove uh, your faithfulness in that, Father. Uh, that, it just blows my mind. It's incredible. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that as, as we depart from here, Lord, that you continue through the, through the 
well, tonight and tomorrow and the rest of the days until we're together again. Uh, Father, please continue just to press in upon our hearts and minds the goodness of your grace and mercy. Um, show us the things in our own lives that, that are displeasing to you, Lord, that we can surrender them to you, that we can find freedom from doing that which is wrong, the freedom to actually do things that are good and, and right and true and exactly what you would desire us to do, Father. Um, we do thank you for that freedom and thank you for the forgiveness uh, that you've offered up to your son. And uh, Lord, help us just to, to live out the realities um, that we've talked about tonight. We love you, Lord, and thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.